the right wing is using the Supreme Court to override the will of the people. How effective an attack on democracy is this, and what can be done? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. Who wouldn't want an originalist on the Supreme Court? The word sounds so neutral, so reassuring. Of course, we all want to protect and preserve the original intent of the founders of America, the men who so carefully and brilliantly created the Constitution. The 21st century Republicans insist they want an originalist as the ninth justice on the Supreme Court. But there is a strong argument that what they are pushing so hard for is actually quite distinct from that reassuring notion. When they say originalist, what they mean is another Antonin Scalia, who was clearly anything but neutral. He heartily embraced and enforced the agenda of the political right wing. Our guest today, Robert Eltsai, argues, quote, our needs as a society are unquestionably different from those who lived even a generation ago, never mind 240 years ago. A Supreme Court that's simply an adjunct to one political party and can obstruct the policies of the majority for too long will accelerate America's democratic decline. To revive our sense of what politics can accomplish, we have to break our cycle of dependency on justices, on judges, end of quote. What now appears to be an unstoppable train rushing at breakneck speed toward Senate approval of Amy Coney Barrett is a very big deal for our democracy. As our guest writes, both parties are approaching these moments as partisan power plays rather than what's in the best interests of our country. And he says it was never supposed to work this way. The truly historic question we face is, can we fix it? Robert Tsai is professor of law at American University and the author of Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. As his new article is titled, on this show we will examine how SCOTUS nominations, Supreme Court of the United States, how SCOTUS nominations became an all-out war. Thanks for being with us, Professor Tsai. The original intent of our founders, perhaps I was naive in thinking that the executive and legislative branches were always assumed to be political in nature, but the third branch, the justice system, was supposed to be above that, a check on those other Two clearly partisan branches. We citizens could always rely on the courts, specifically the Supreme Court of the land, to clearly uh, be not partisan, but to have the Constitution as their reference point, defining what is in the best interests of the country. You say the root of the difficulty lies with the Constitution itself, whose authors fail to anticipate that parties would eventually dominate the system the way they do. Professor Tsai, what do you mean, and in what ways is the Constitution itself on trial in the 2020s? Uh, that's a great question. If we start with a particular moment in which the framers uh, lived and were thinking through the problems that uh, Americans faced uh, at the end of the 18th century, what we see is that the framers you know, had a, a very interesting um, theory of um, how politics worked, 
Um, there was much that was still very experimental. Um, but what can be not controverted is that they wanted it to make the government one that was more effective, one that worked, one that could rise up to meet the challenges that a, a, fledging, a fledgling nation uh, faced. And in the designing constitution, they wanted to create a document where future generations would be able to rise up and meet those challenges, whatever those things uh, would be. Now, as far as the, the courts are concerned, though, you know, they, they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the courts. They spent a lot more time comparatively uh, setting up Congress, setting up uh, the presidency. And, uh, you know, if anything, if we, if we look back at what Hamilton said about uh, the judiciary, um, they really thought that the Supreme Court, um, you know, would be the least dangerous branch. Uh, they wanted uh, one branch of government to, you know, to be responsible for uh, leading and applying the laws, but um, they, they they certainly didn't anticipate, for example, uh, what we have today, a, uh, a modern uh, system of courts uh, that's very complicated, um, nor did they envision uh, a Supreme Court that could so decisively intervene in any number of uh, controversies, including the current uh, election, right? Uh, what is it, about 40 million people have already voted? Um, and at any moment, we're, we're sort of terrified, right, that the Supreme Court could step in and do a replay of Bush versus Gore. Um, that's something that the framers uh, didn't anticipate. The other thing that, that you mentioned, and I think it, uh, is really into to the story about the courts, is, you know, they had parties that were just starting to develop. But the parties that the framers, um, you know, operated within, they were not big nationalist parties that were well financed and um, that policed ideology uh, in a kind of ruthless way and in the way that we sometimes see modern parties. Um, And, and, you know, the framers really didn't uh, expect that we would have uh, powerful national parties uh, able to sort of take over multiple um, levers of the national government and and really stymie change. Um, You know, the, the big thing to worry about now is that a party that, that can't win or doesn't win right. a national majority of a vote can still hang on to power, can still entrench its uh, party platforms uh, through, uh, through the court system. Um, if Amy Coney Barrett is, uh, in fact, confirmed, as most people expect yeah. her to be, yeah. that will make five justices of the, of the current Supreme Court that have been appointed by presidents who didn't win a a majority of the popular vote. Um, and, and that's something I think the framers did not anticipate. Well, we know uh, Trump did not win the popular vote, which, and that's, he's got, uh, I guess, three now. Who, who are the others? Yeah. Who's the other one that was? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I have in mind um, uh, George W. Bush, so, so uh, 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 the son, uh, right, who, right. who also, right, so he, he did win election, but of course, if, if um, the, the court had not intervened and, uh-huh. in a sense, handed him the victory, right, then, then he would not have been able to, uh, to appoint the justices oh, uh, he appointed. That was too obvious. I should have gotten that. Well, let's look at the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the 2000 election. It's on everybody's mind again. And there's a lot of uh, wondering if that's what the you know, steamrolling of the Amy Coney Barrett uh, uh, appointment to the court is all about. 
it was, of course, the 2000 election was decided by the Supreme Court. If the Electoral College outcome of this upcoming election is close, how likely is it that, as you wonder, it may, quote, increase the odds that a party could retain power even though it loses the popular vote, which, as we said, did happen in 2000? How? What about this, this outcome? There's a lot of worry that if she's on there, the whole point is to somehow fix the election, to change the electors or, or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts on uh, the increased chances of yeah, that? I, I, Go ahead. I, I am worried about it. I, I think that um, what, we, what we saw in Bush versus Gore is what election ex- experts call um, overtime, right, where there's no uh, kind of decisive win and you have uh, a contested election and this can land in the courts and, and possibly in the political branches as well. Uh, and, you know, that's what we saw in, in Bush versus Gore, where the Supreme Court stepped in and during overtime and essentially short-circuited the political process that had been previously laid out. It should have, it should have gone to the House of Representatives under existing federal law, and uh, the party should have duped it out there. Um, so there is that risk now that if, there is a close kind of electoral college scenario mm-hmm. uh, that either, you know, the two candidates are tied um, or, you, you know, they're close. And then you've got a couple of states that aren't able to make a call. Um, you, you could wind up in a similar overtime scenario uh, where you have a lot of litigation. And um, I think this time multiple uh, battleground states uh, and still with the possibility uh, uh, a kind of political resolution, but then we just don't know what the court will do now that it has a uh, a Bush versus Gore precedent. Mm-hmm. I think there's even an additional concern right now, uh, and that's what's happening uh, at this very moment. It's not we're not yet in overtime. Uh, people are trying to vote, right? Uh, different states are are uh, uh, many states are trying to make it easier for people during a pandemic to vote, but there are some states that are making it harder. Oh, yeah. um, the, right? The governor of Texas uh, issued an you know emergency order that had the effect of, and I think he intended to close down right a number of the uh, drop boxes in the most populous uh, counties in Texas, which is just truly outrageous, right? In a in a country that thinks of itself as a democracy. Um, and, and so we've got these kind of, um, uh, kind of different sorts of policies that have been active, some trying to broaden voting, others trying to severely uh, restrict access uh, uh, to the ballot. And Bush versus Gore, since we, that precedent exists, uh, is being used uh, by, camp- by the campaigns, um, and, and particularly aggressively by the president's campaign, um, to try to uh, you know, uh, shut down some of these um, uh, efforts to expand the vote. And so I think that's really where there's a lot of action right now, which is making it very, very unpredictable, um, at, at, particularly in the battleground states. I mean, we, we can worry a little bit less about, uh, you know, the places like California. And I was going to say we, we wouldn't have to worry about Texas, but suddenly the polling, yeah. right, in Texas and in North Carolina and Georgia uh, is showing a tightening where, uh, these kinds of things can make a uh, make a huge difference in the outcome. Yeah, they really can. A point here, a point there. Pretty soon you're talking a lot of points and a pretty uh, different uh, outcome. And to affect that, uh, you know, by uh, voter suppression, 
they've known what they were doing. I mean, back in the early part of the uh, 20th century, there was, uh, you know, blatant uh, Jim Crow laws. Now the yeah, 21st century has to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. But there's still the attempt to stifle the votes. And as you said, the Constitution itself may be on trial in the next decade that's just starting out. But I wonder, the intent of the founders was to have a republic, if we could keep it, as Ben Franklin so famously said. What roadblocks or perhaps guardrails did they intend? And, and what, in what ways was their theory of tyranny a little too simplistic, do you think? Yeah, I think that the basic idea of tyranny as the scenario where one faction or a couple of factions can sort of gang up uh, on everybody else uh, by uh, by gaining um, uh, multiple levers of power. Um, this this is basically a sound place to start, uh, and I think uh, it's such a sound place to start. This is one of the things that um, kind of got re-exported to a lot of different other countries, um, you know, after our founding. Um, that insight lead, uh, you know, led for us to uh, the idea of separation of powers. Uh, but, but, but I think that where the framers didn't carry this idea to completely uh, was this, you know, was was the was the inability to foresee something like a national organization or two national organizations kind of uh, butting heads, uh, each with a kind of an imperative to to seize control of multiple layers of uh, letters of power. So here, again, imagine the modern GOP, not the, not the Reagan um, GOP that, that some of us grew up with that tried to be a big tent, that tried to, you know, um, uh, govern for the majority, but rather the GOP in, in recent years that has uh, been content with becoming more of a minority party, uh, uh, okay with representing uh, mostly white interests, um, yeah. uh, being particularly harsh in the way they talk about things like uh, police brutality, diversity, immigration. For a party that, that is, that is uh, that's kind of uh, slipping into minority status, uh, you know, that party can still uh, hold one of the houses uh, of government, let's say the Senate, um, and one... Uh, uh, one other branch of government and can do quite a lot of damage. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if, you know, if you hold the presidency and if you hold the Senate, uh, now that you can, you can sort of uh, jam the courts up with sort of like-minded people. That's a little bit about what I talked about in, 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 in the short piece, because um, the rise of partisan entrenchment, right? The idea that a party will turn to the courts Mm -hmm. as a way to entrench its power and influence, even if it later loses elections, right? Um, it has become a real problem in our constitutional uh, structure. And uh, that's the problem that we have to sort of now design around. We have to find reforms that can uh, grapple with the severity of this, this idea of partisan entrenchment. Otherwise, you could have the possibility of uh, you know, another party winning uh, majority uh, of the votes, but somehow incapable, right, of being able to uh, implement the policies, health care, perhaps, uh, Green New Deal, perhaps, um, uh, that a majority of Americans want, but right. simply because these levers have been controlled by, um, by the minority party. 
Oh, boy, it is a complex situation, and I'm not sure if it's uh, one that the, the founders uh, could have foreseen. Uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, the future of democracy. Uh, our guest today is a professor of law at American University, Robert Tsai, who's written uh, How the Supreme Court of the U.S. Nominations Became an All-Out War. And my understanding is that before the Civil War, that people would say the United States are. And then after the Civil War, it was the United States is. And that's a, a big difference. How there wasn't, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, and I don't know my macro history that well, but it wasn't clear at the time of the founding of the Constitution, was it that, that there was a strong national uh, centralized uh, uh, concentrated power government uh, as compared to uh, the states? Uh, what was the situation when the Constitution was created? And that makes a big difference. Yeah, it, I think you, you point to a very important moment, which you know we certainly should talk about, and that is Civil War and Reconstruction. It's a, it's a moment that uh, not a lot of Americans, I think, uh, fully understand. It's, it's rarely taught well. Um, and th there are a lot of reasons why uh, it's, it's, it's not at the forefront of our thinking about our constitutional design, though it ought to be. There are a lot of people who have been toiling in the, you know, in the fields trying to get people to think harder about, uh, you know, the radical Republicans uh, and, the, and the innovations that they, uh, uh, that they implemented and also some of the ones that they tried to, uh, tried to do but failed to do. Maybe let's just start there because, uh, you're, you know, if you look backwards, um, the, you know, the, 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 the biggest innovation uh, that comes out of the Reconstruction uh, Amendments uh, is... Uh, the, the idea that we have to be more uh, of a nation, um, it's not just that the, that the center has to have more power. Uh, those amendments gave the center more power with respect to specific things. So, for example, um, you know, the, the, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, gave Congress explicitly power to enforce things like, uh, you know, ideas like equality. Um, that Congress didn't obviously have power to do before that, um, and to deal with um, uh, you know, obstructions to voting rights um, coming in the Fifteenth Amendment in a way that was not obvious right before that Congress had the power to deal with those problems. Um, and you know, so I think the Reconstruction Amendments are very, very important uh, for the idea of citizenship um, and who belongs as well as enlarging the power of Congress to do something about, um, you know, creating uh, a single national uh, community of citizens who are free and equal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think that's the main thing that comes out of um, uh, Reconstruction, um, not merely just the enlargement of, of the center's power for its own sake. Um, you mentioned sort of, I, I think, you know, you know, states' rights or federalism, and yeah. and it's true that at the founding, those those um, ideas remained uh, pretty powerful. Um, that the you know the original constitution doesn't resolve that question decisively, right? We, we it, the original constitution doesn't create like a consolidated government. Um, right. Where, uh, but there are there were pieces of things, there were ideas in that original document 
that definitely tilted the debate in favor of the center, right? For example, the supremacy of federal law, mm-hmm. right? So once, once the center acted and it was clear the center had the power to act, then the states had to fall in line, right, uh, to, to a large extent. So um, um, you say something about the framers wanted to build an effective national government while creating institutional roadblocks to, to uh, stymie the excesses of democracy. And a lot of people have pointed right. out we're not a you know, direct participatory democracy or a republic that you know, functions democratically, at least in theory. What was was the, was the court supposed to uh, have some sort of a, a guardrail or roadblocks to stymie the excesses of democracy? And how might that be coming into play now? Yeah, I, I think our modern theory uh, about what courts should be doing to protect, say, individual rights, uh, maybe this is one of the guardrails you're thinking of. Uh, this is this is a much more of a modern idea. Uh-huh. Um, it, uh, there, there's a, a little bit of this sort of conversation about uh, liberty, but a lot of times when the framers were talking about liberty, they had uh, uh, primarily or, or maybe exclusively for some a participatory idea of political liberty, meaning, um, you know, what they understood about liberty was the ability of, uh, at, at that time, you know, free white property yeah. holding yeah. men and their ability to come together and their equal power to kind of decide their futures, right? Uh, that's what they meant by political liberty. It, it, it's not the way that we think about it in terms of uh, things like bodily integrity or, to, you know, to be free from, uh, you know, racial harassment um, or overweening uh, the power of the police. The, the, these are all sort of more modern, uh-huh. um, you know, adaptations of a kind of, uh, John Stuart Mill philosophy that we've sort of engrafted, uh, I think, much more recently onto the courts. Um, that, that's not, you know, that's not really how the framers talked about what the courts did. Yeah. You know, if you go back to, you know, Federal 78, Hamilton's just talking, you know, courts, you know, courts are there to kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, take the Constitution on the one hand and then federal law on the other and kind of um, make sure they match, you know, this kind of a thing. Um, not much more, you know, beyond beyond that. Well, what concerns me, and I imagine a lot of people, the idea of originalist Scalia and now Amy Comey Barrett, uh, you know, if he's going to be real originalist, maybe this is what the right wing of the Republican Party intends. Uh, you know, it's just white property-owning men who the Constitution was originally written for. I, I, they haven't said that publicly, but I wonder if that's right. what they mean. And I, I, you know, there's a lot of concern about that. I think it would be unfair to say that, say, Amy Coney Barrett, you know, explicitly wants to, um, not explicitly, no, you know, turn turn our country into one where only only men, you know, only white men have power. But but I do think that the philosophy of originalism, the judicial methodology, this is how they talk about it. Um, you know, I'm not an originalist. Uh, but the, but the way they talk about it um, is something we need to to think hard about um, mm. because uh, it's you know it's no accident that uh, most originalists not every single originalist but most originalists um, are conservative many of them are socially conservative 
Um, and um, the, 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 you know, the most troubling aspect of the philosophy of methodology is that there is one, one true reading of the Constitution. Uh, and that one true reading of the Constitution was fixed in meaning at, uh, say, the moment of ratification. Right? It, it, now, you can get into complicated questions of whether it's the, the moment is 1787 mm-hmm. or 1789, uh, or uh, hopefully at least uh, we, we can think about the, uh, you know, the Reconstruction uh, uh, amended Constitution. But in any event, that, that's the claim, is that the, there was a meaning that was objective at that moment in time. It was fixed at that moment. And what we have to do is we have to identify that meaning as people understood it then. Um, and that continues to govern us today. Um, you know, so um, what would that mean? Right. Uh, well, you know, some originalists will disagree about application, but they, but they accept that first premise as I laid it out. And I think what that might mean is um, that a lot of things that have happened since then, the modern administrative state, um, uh, certainly uh, a lot of the individual rights uh, uh, that we've become uh, accustomed to uh, that are not specifically mentioned, right, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the original Bill of Rights. So things like right to bodily integrity, of course, abortion has been mentioned, but it's more than just abortion. It's, um, you know, the, the right to educate uh, your family, your children, um, uh, co- you know, contraception, other sort of life yeah. uh, important decisions. Uh, none of that is written in the constitution right. at all and the originalists would say those things don't exist i think mm. um to be to, to be frank about that now um now precedent comes into play because a lot of uh, our reliance on those rights has come from judges since then saying those rights exist right but i think that the originalist who's a good one would be willing at some point to revisit those precedents and even to overturn them Oof. Yeah, that's some scary stuff. And and you say that the framers thought the biggest risk to liberty, however that's defined, was the Congress and couldn't imagine that the judiciary would ever grow out of its role as the least dangerous branch. What could they, you know, they didn't see foresee the increased role partisan politics would play. Could, I mean, they, they couldn't see into the future, of course, but I wonder if there were ways... Uh, that they have perhaps more specifically as a legal scholar, you could see that perhaps they could kept the court less bound to partisan powers. Could there have been things done that would, would have been maybe not too difficult? And what would sure. they Sure. I mean, some of the things, yeah, I mean, some of the things um, that perhaps, you know, if they had spent more time thinking about designing the courts for the long term, um, they could have done. These are some of the, the same ideas that are now kind of in the ecosystem that people are starting to talk about more openly. But, uh, you know, for instance, if they really worried about, um, uh, you know, too many people of the same sort of ideological stripe or mm. too many people who are lackeys of one party becoming judges for, you know, a very long time, they could have limited the number uh, of, of justices that, uh, or judges that any one president could appoint. Uh-huh. Um, they, they could have um, uh, set term limits. Um, by the way, on term limits, you know, one thing a lot of Americans don't realize is that we have become 
the outlier in the world. Uh, we're the only, uh, you know, Western democracy that doesn't have term limits. Um, I mean, even North Korea and Iran have term limits uh, for their uh, for their highest court, uh, but we don't. And you know, you know, Clarence Thomas has I think served about twenty eight years so far on the Supreme Court in yeah. counting. Uh, and uh, on the liberal side, like the long the person who, the person who served the longest on the Supreme Court was I think William Douglas, about thirty seven years or so. And, you know, that's just too long. It's, it, in many ways, because what you run into is the problem that a judge is so out of touch um, from the needs of, of, of the people living right now. What they're doing is they're entrenching their own values from even a generation ago. Um, and uh, so, so term limits um, is something. Um, certainly other people are talking about um, uh, the size of the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that the framers totally left open. Yes. Uh, That's important because in yeah in the constitution they they, they didn't say uh, how big the court should be they only said actually that there needed to be uh, one supreme court so so actually you know all the other courts that have been created are not um, not required by the constitution but something that we've you know Congress over the years has decided is a more efficient way of doing business but. Um, they could have spelled out, and that's something that could still be done now. Yes. Uh, the court's jurisdiction, they could limit um, the, you know, the Supreme Court's power um, uh, to deal with uh, some things but not other things. So, mm. for example, if you didn't want the Supreme Court in the future to, like, decide uh, national elections, right, uh, whether it's the president or mm-hmm. a senator's deeply contested election, you wanted the political branches to duke that out. Um, then, you know, you could, you could in theory, uh, pass a law, um, uh, to try to, to try to do that. I like that idea. That's a very interesting idea. And we need to, you know, there's a lot of talking about packing the court. Now it seems to me the courts up and down, all the federal courts have been packed very, very effectively by this current administration. What can we do to undo that is is really the question. Again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Professor of Law at American University, Robert Tsai, who's written an article, How Supreme Court of the U.S. Nominations Became an All-Out War. All right, how did we get here? The partisan nature of appointments to the Supreme Court came into greatly enhanced focus with the nomination of Robert Bork, by President Reagan in 1982, and of course, the highly contentious nomination and eventual approval of Brett Kavanaugh by President Trump. But your essay reveals that concern about partisanship goes back much further. What happened in 1801 that set the stage for ever increasing the scale of what you call partisan dysfunction? Well, uh, you know, in, in 1801, uh, well, in 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, wins election and uh, defeating Adams. And, uh, you know, before Jefferson's able to take office, this is the first uh, sort of moment in which uh, there's going to be a, a, a changeover in, in, in parties. Uh, and it's an important moment. Uh, and what happens is um, on his way out before Jefferson assumes office, Adams um, uh, picks uh, John Marshall, who is a Federalist, a member of his own party, uh, to become uh, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And um, this moment 
is uh, important because it tells us that, um, you know, it's certainly uh, not true that we've never had partisan, part, you know, efforts to entrench partisan uh, values and policies. That goes all the way back to this moment. Right. Um, uh, Marshall was picked specifically because of his ties uh, to the Federalist Party and with the expectation that when he had important cases in front of him, uh, he would, uh, as much as possible, express right the party's views about um, uh, the new government's power. And indeed, he does that right in the famous uh, decision, Marbury versus Madison, um, and where he uh, articulates the power of the uh, of the Supreme Court to kind of wade into uh, 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 laws and to strike unconstitutional ones down. Um, so that's an important moment. Um, but since that moment, um, the, this, I, this strategy of uh, one party trying to entrench its values, its policies, has gotten a lot worse. It's almost as though, right, it, it, it's, it's become a system uh, on speed. And, um, you know, over time, um, th- there hasn't seemed to be enough of a mobilization um, to kind of stop that dynamic, parties trying to hang on to power and push its policies uh, through the courts. Um, you know, there was a period of time during the Warren Court era, mm-hmm. um, that, that period where, you know, that, that, that most liberals, progressives love because, um, you know, that, that court not only uh, issued Brown versus Board of Education and struck down uh, segregated public schools, but also expanded the rights of, uh, of, of criminal defendants. Um, but conservatives were unhappy with what was happening oh, yeah. uh, during that period. And the way they resisted it uh, largely was to say that the judicial power had gone too far, that the, that, that the Supreme Court was overreaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but then something happened. Um, in, instead of trying to hold the line and thinking through ways of holding the line, uh, the GP, the GOP eventually, uh, you know, decided to invest in the courts. They decided to uh, uh, commit resources to putting their own judges and justices, uh, as many conservative ones as possible, uh, to groom young uh, people who uh, could be depended on to kind of write these values and policies uh, into their judicial decisions. Uh, and um, so instead of trying to, you know, trying to uh, get rid of rights, you, you saw an effort to say, um, well, why don't we just find judges who will write, you know, our version of rights uh-huh. sort of into the Constitution, right? So corporate rights, yes. um, you know, uh, the rights of, of religious organizations and religious employers um, to um, kind of exempt themselves from civil rights laws, mm. um, uh, gun rights, mm. right? The Heller decision written by Justice Scalia, is a perfect example of this, right? That a lot of money went into that litigation, and in Heller, Justice Scalia, for the first time, uh, said that the Second Amendment uh, affords individuals a right uh, to, uh, you know, own or possess certain kinds of guns, and uh, that just sort of convinced um, this sort of new breed of conservatives that this was the right strategy, right? that they just needed to pour more money and resources into finding the right uh, judges, federalist society-type judges, who will give them these kinds of rights. 
Yeah, interesting. It seems that, uh, you know, it's not like the Republicans have been alone in wanting to have their agenda uh, on the courts. But it does seem that, I hate to say this, the Republicans learned from history a heck of a lot better than the Democrats. I, I, you know, they, they, they got it. They really did. And I certainly remember as a kid, you know, the right wing push for impeachment of Chief Justice oh. Earl, Earl Warren. It was uh, right. It really got him fired up. And uh, they seemed uh, they seemed to really uh, gain some energy from that. And, and here we are now. It's like uh, learning from the Goldwater election in 1964. They didn't give up on the on the right wing. They went more to the right and just uh, invested in that more. And. And speaking of the uh, Warren Court, you say in the days of the Warren Court, conservatives argued that the power of judges needed to be reined in. Uh, they, they said that the uh, influence of the courts should be reduced and debates should be returned to the people. I, I wonder if that the effect of that might be to further erode the intent of our founders. Y- your thoughts on that? I mean, it wasn't, wasn't the court supposed to... Uh, you know, kind of rein in uh, the excesses of, of democracy and make it so that, hey, you know, stick to the Constitution, to the intent of it. W- what are your thoughts about uh, what the conservatives were saying back then? Well, you know, again, I don't I don't I don't think that as a matter of original, you know, original design, um, you know, the the Supreme Court was envisioned to be this big, uh, so, you know, sort of libertarian force. Mm. I think that's just uh, a, a myth that was built up. Uh, in, in recent years, by progressives and libertarians, um, and in some ways, that it's, it's a misreading of history because if we actually take the long view of things and we look at uh, the decisions of the Supreme Court, we'll see that for most of the, the, the Supreme Court's history, except for perhaps this blip during the Warren Court years, uh, the Supreme Court has been no friend of human rights. Um, the Supreme Court, after the Civil War, uh, read the Reconstruction Amendments in ways that were extremely narrow and which ended up short-circuiting the power of Congress to enact civil rights laws. Um, it, um, uh, it also intervened um, uh, to ratify a, a racial uh, segregation, and that prolonged, I think, in many ways, uh, that period in time. Uh, we like to remember you know, these, these interventions that ended up in a progressive uh, liberal way like Brown or maybe sure. more recently uh, Obergefell in the in gay marriage uh, right. uh, case. But that, that's a kind of failing on the Democratic, I think, progressive side of things that they're willing to take so little. Uh, uh, they're, they're willing to accept these um, occasional moments, right, um, where the Supreme Court is going to give them uh, something uh, and, 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 and they still... Uh, are willing to rely on the courts when most of the time the courts are are not are not on the side of human rights are not on the side of workers' rights. Right. Um, uh, and uh, even in this pandemic, you have uh, oh my gosh, you know, federal courts that are many of whom are doing things to strike down uh, uh, emergency orders by uh, governors oh, and mayors um, to like keep us safe. So um, mm. you know. You know, I, I think we are. Um, uh, that's that's actually an area that really has to be thought through a little bit more, uh, better uh, 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 by people on the left. Yeah. Well, you say uh, uh, the the courts have short circuited Congress. Well, maybe in the future. 
perhaps Congress can short circuit uh, <laughs> the courts. <laughs> you know, and, very possible. And you know, I, I happen to be a big fan of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and you know, after the Supreme Court ruled much many of his New Deal efforts to be unconstitutional, of course, he tried to expand the court. It failed. But it does seem the court was pushed by that effort, and they then approved mm-hmm. as constitutional, for example, the Wagner Act and other pro-New Deal uh, uh, decisions. The, the, perhaps the threat of expanding the court, you know, maybe they felt the pressure. I mean, theoretically, they're supposed to be immune to public pressure. Uh, but uh, perhaps it might be good that if, if Biden does win, knock on the wood, uh, that the court majority can be aware that if the Senate and the House and the president are, are that party, maybe that can be, uh, you know, push them a little bit. Because for them to suddenly approve the and, and say the Wagner Act was constitutional, but the other New Deal mm-hmm. acts weren't. Uh, interesting. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, ab- yeah absolutely. I, I think that's a, that's a great historical moment to go back and look at. Um, both from a strategic perspective, if you're interested in court reform, uh, but but also, uh, you know, from this sort of historical perspective, institutional perspective, of trying to understand how actions by one, you know, in one uh, in one branch of government can affect another, even if you don't, you know, you don't complete the uh, the reform. And um, you know, there is that school of thought that you've articulated, which is that um, far from it not working, it actually uh, it actually did work in terms of, um, you know, kind of hanging out there as um, a kind of a big warning, you know, sign to the Supreme Court that uh, if they are too far uh, out of step from popular sentiment and what the needs of the people are today, uh, then they're going to get reorganized, right? Uh, they, they, you know, they, or at least they're going to, uh, experience some changes that will affect how they function, and uh, you know I find that really interesting because in a, in, in a in a weird way it's what 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 FDR tried was a kind of out of the box um, tactic, um, but harnessing something that Madison said, right? That you know his whole idea was to try to uh, harness the you know one institution's self interest against another, and um, so, you know, if the lesson from that moment is that there are a range of things that you can do to kind of push and prod uh, an institution that's doing um, uh, too many bad things, anti-democratic things, uh, being purely obstacles rather than being cooperative, um, you know, then maybe uh, today, you know, if it, you know, what can be done is, um, you know, introducing a bunch of stuff, but maybe slow, slow playing it, mm-hmm. uh, reforms, right? But making sure that that educative process continues, um, people are understanding it, that support builds for one or more of those things. And, you know, it could be that, um, you know, for a period of time, you could get the court to sort of uh, behave. Yeah. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a limit to that, though, yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, I think that once that moment passes, you'll still have the long-term structural problems that we've been talking about, right? You still have life tenure uh, right. where someone can, can serve too long. Uh, you might still have major ideological imbalance on the court. 
uh, which we have right now, but oh, yeah. with Amy Coney Barrett, will just get worse. That that block will be six three, um, uh, and, um, and and that won't change, you know, um, unless you know you do something else. Yeah, it seems like uh, something else has to be done. And the media, the mainstream media, keeps pressing uh, Biden. Would you so-called pack the court? I think I'm not sure that's the best term, but that's, you know, with the term that was used for FDR. The courts have been packed already. Lord knows. I mean, the Trump bar religious nationalists who are very different from what I would consider to be conservatives, they've had tremendous success at packing the courts so that it, not just the Supreme Court, but most of the courts throughout the land, they've been really focused on that. They, they now lean to the far right. Are they not actually trying to have the right wing ideologically dominate the entire justice system instead of and overriding the old conservative insistence that people are to rule through elections by controlling the levers of the judiciary? Are they manipulating the constitutionally set up system to enhance their de facto ability to govern, you know, sort of an end right. run around democracy. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And um, that's, so that's a problem that I think um, judicial uh, term limits can, can help with um, to some degree, right? That, that uh, once we start to see that life tenure uh, isn't some magical thing that 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 yields somehow some kind of in, uh, independence uh, and neutrality, and we don't need that uh, um, to uh, uh, to get good thoughtful judges on the courts. Uh, but instead, that life tenure is something that is a major problem for democracy. Right? Uh, then uh, we can have term limits that are are reasonable, um, that are long enough where people can develop some expertise sure. and not feel beholden to the president or the party that put them in that position, but where, the, you know, people will eventually move on and do something else, go back to practice of law or something. You know, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is, you know, when the framers um, put what seems to be the equivalent of life tenure, this idea of serving, uh, you know, uh, while in good behavior in the constitution, um, the average life expectancy uh, for a white male, right, was about 38 years. Oh, my. <laughs> so so that, that's something that they clearly didn't think much about, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, and now we've got Clarence Thomas, who has served 28 years and counting, uh, and Amy Coney Barrett's very young, and oh, so if she she's could be there 40. Yeah, she could uh, be there 40 be there years. 40 years easily. Um, and we don't have uh, mandatory retirement ages, which other countries do, mm. right? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of ways in which we can show that um, this is uh, this is a uh, institution that has grown to the point that it has a lot of power, a lot of power to obstruct democracy. Mm -hmm. um, that we have to either find workarounds, legislative workarounds, or if we can't, we need we need constitutional reform. We need a new constitution rather than trying to continue to engraft, um, you know, our thoughts and adaptations to a, a late 18th century document. Um, uh, in a way, our fighting over the existence of rights like abortion just, if we step, step back a moment, should show us how absurd this is, right? That, you know, if we could have a constitutional convention 
and do what most countries have done and ask ourselves today what rights we think are important, put them in the document, uh, we wouldn't have such absurd battles over certain words that are or are not in our Bill of Rights anymore. Right? It would be obvious that, that certain things like bodily integrity or, um, or even um, uh, the right to choose uh, you know, could be in our modern Bill of Rights. I mean, a lot of states have already done this within the United States. So um, uh, that's what will really get up, get us out of this moment. Well, I wonder about finally that. I, I wonder about making these changes. I mean, of course, a constitutional convention is a little. You know, I think it's kind of a lot risky. There's some. I mean, there's the the whole Trump base, which I never would have foreseen, but they, I guess they've been there the whole time. And opening it up like that to create a new constitution—that's that's more than a little bit scary. But what about you know if, if, how can can the through this complicated uh, judicial system can the the constitution would it have to be amended if we don't have a constitutional convention, write a new constitution? Could there still be, with the courts as they are, uh, uh, changes like, for example, to to have term limits, to do away with uh, uh, you know lifetime appointments, and to uh, to make make it so that the president can only get uh, so many appointments? Does that have to be done through constitutional amendments? And yeah, so that's an open. That's going to be the open question, and um, you know, so some of us have been working on these these, these questions. I mean, I I, I have been. Uh, supportive of, of term limits. There's one workaround that's actually in a bill in the House right now that has a number of supporters, uh, and that's to create a functional 18-year uh, uh, term limit uh, for the Supreme Court. It wouldn't apply to anyone who's on there now, um, so they couldn't complain <laughs> that right that that they're that you know that they're being affected, but that a future a future justice appointed uh, if this thing could be passed uh, uh, once. Once they're appointed and confirmed, then the cl- a clock would start. And once they reach the 18th year of service, mm-hmm. they, was, they would turn into a senior justice, uh, like there are senior judges in a lot of courts. Mm-hmm. And then their, their, um, uh, their responsibilities would change, mm-hmm. right? So you, you wouldn't be getting rid of the, the justice uh, or the judge, if you broaden the idea, um, but you would be changing what they, what they could handle. Uh, and that would be one way to create a kind of functional um, term limit uh, while, uh, you know, uh, being, remaining uh, consistent with the idea of, of, of life tenure. But here's the problem, is that if you've got too many justices at the moment on that court, when that bill comes up and is challenged, right, what are they going to do? And, um, you know, they may strike it down. Um, or they may uh, they may uphold it. Um, it could be that if there's been a lot of noise mm-hmm. about the need for court reform, so yes. this is your, you know your your saber rattling idea, uh-huh. then maybe you know maybe that's the that's the important move then that they end up finding a way to uphold that uh, to save themselves. You know, uh-huh. um, uh, you know I, I could I could I could foresee something like that happening. I wouldn't predict it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 that's the obstacle is, is that, you know, any non-constitutional reform like rewriting the Constitution or amending it um, that you try through the federal courts, even though some of us think that it's constitutional, 
you, you know, you got a bunch of justices on the court that that could very well strike it down sure. um, on an expansive reading of their own power. <laughs> and who doesn't like their own power expanded? Uh, and speaking of which, you know, we started out talking about that term originalist. And there are people on the right who have tried to uh, criticize justices that they don't like, like the great legendary Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They call them activist judges. Now, I I wonder, I mean, it seems to me that Scalia could be called uh, an activist justice. What does the right mean by the use of the term, uh, of the terms originalist versus activist? Uh, You know, are they valid terms or are they just uh, totally subjective? Yeah, so I'm I'm of the view that um, there, there may have been a moment in time when those kinds of arguments had much more purchase. Um, certainly when conservatives, you know, use, use that term activism to talk about uh, liberal judges, I think at that moment in time, uh, to the extent that they were trying to be consistent, what they were saying was, you know, uh, judges that are being uh, somewhat uh, aggressive and creative, right, in uh, coming up with rights that you may have a hard time defending as a matter of the text of the Constitution or resort to history or tradition or something like this, right? Um, but the, the problem with originalism is that's not a, a non-activist solution. Yeah. Um, you know, originalists say it is because they, they, they claim to be discerning the, right, the meaning of the Constitution at the moment it was written or ratified. But I think, as you sort of are suggesting, um, it can, originalism actually is quite activist in the sense that if you read Justice Clarence Thomas's originalist decisions, um, you know, his, for example, his reading of the Commerce Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause, which he claims would take us back to a kind of 1789 you know, understanding of the Commerce Clause, it would, re- it would require us to um, you know, overrule a whole bunch of precedents and go back to a, a, a world in which uh, uh, like a like a direct economic exchange, you know, is is the kind of thing that that Congress could regulate. But a lot of other things, like uh, that underlie, say, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, perhaps would not uh, come within the meaning of the uh, of, of the Commerce Clause, um, uh, along with a lot of other things. So uh, that would be an example of originalism as quite quite aggressive, quite activist. Well, just, I don't want to assume anything, because Lord knows in 2016, the election looked one way, but it turned out a different way. If Biden makes it, if we get rid of this orange guy, and we have the U.S. Senate, a lot of ifs there, can Congress just undo the Supreme Court decisions legislatively? Is is it possible? I mean, should people be freaking out that this this is never going to get better than any damn thing we can do? Or... You know, are, are there uh, channels we could take to, uh, you know, put it back into serving perhaps what, what you and I might think is the intent, the intent of the Constitution and serve democracy? I, I think that if the Democrats could uh, gain the uh, presidency, uh, hang on to the House and then gain the Senate uh, for a few years, uh, even, I think they're, and the Democratic Party became very committed to kind of renewing democracy. Uh, I think that there there are tremendous number of areas in which they could do a lot of good. 
um, by passing laws that would put, put pressure uh, certainly in a Supreme Court uh, that was ideologically hostile uh, to a lot of these reforms. But I think eventually they couldn't say no to everything, kind of in that, you know, that New Deal sort of way. Um, and the areas I'm thinking of are everything from, um, uh, you know, judicial reform, court reform, like we're talking about, mm-hmm. trying a whole bunch of different things, uh, reorganizing the judiciary, but also voting rights. We, oh, we need a, a new voting rights law, yes. uh, one that um, uh, puts pressure on the Supreme Court again, uh, one that um, can be effective in getting at a lot of the things that we are seeing today uh, that the Supreme Court uh, wants to close its eyes to, pretend it doesn't happen anymore. Um, and, um, you know, and there are other areas, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, in the area of healthcare, the right to healthcare, access to healthcare, um, there's much more that's got to be done in that area. And others have, you know, the, the Green New Deal stuff. So, I, I could envision that if, if the Democratic Party could win, gain those levers of power, stay together long enough uh, to enact right a, 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 a progressive, um, de- democratic reform uh, kind of slate of things, it could it could really transform uh, a lot. And and if the Supreme Court obstructed this agenda, uh-huh. um, I think. It could really uh, lay the lay the groundwork for uh, uh, you know something more. Indeed. Um, so so we'll see. We will see. There, uh, if Biden wins, it's going to be a lot on the plate. Thank you so much. This is very very interesting. A little bit hopeful. We like that. Robert Sai, TSAI professor of law at American University. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, explaining what's been very confusing to a lot of people. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bert. Thanks.